Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. It should go without saying, I am your host, Andrew Lewis, and it is grand final week. It's October. It doesn't feel the way it normally feels, but things are different. But it is a grand final, and we love grand finals. And joining me on this grand final preview edition of the podcast is our resident AFL expert, Cameron McDonald. Good evening, Cameron. How are you? G'day, partner. I'm well, thanks, mate. Um, is the Gabba 25Ks away? or? Um, that, um... I don't know. I reckon the Gabba might be three kilometres away from the centre of Brisbane. Right. But, but so Working might, backwards from there. It might be actually quicker for me to get there. I remember going to the footy there once and trying to get from where the CBD is out to the Gabba they have they have a train i think the closest train gets you about a, like a 40 minute walk away um then they have these special underground bus roads queensland's uh, it, well they they can enjoy it it's a different place and brisbane is it'll be it'll be wonderful once they finish it yeah it's not not overly impressive when you get there either is it there's um big concrete slabs outside the um the gabba and yeah, like corners of it. Oh, it's it's a bizarre place. I'm with you. It is. Um, I was at a day of test cricket there a couple of years back, and um, that was good. It was good to tick off another ground on my on my wish list. And it's always pretty good cricket when it's played there. But um, yeah, now they can have the Gabba for the most part. Um, I have I, see another grand final there. I I I've been ticked off the Gabba from a cricket point of view. As I said, I have been to a. St Kilda Brisbane game there, the Cameron Wood game, Easter Thursday, <laughs> two thousand and seven, where he got his. We were going through a wonderful period where every every everybody seemed to get a Rising Star nomination against us. I mean, Cameron Wood played for you guys. Did he play a decent game for Collingwood? Uh, you, you could probably argue that he played an okay game for Collingwood in there somewhere. In there somewhere, you don't want to speak ill of a former Collingwood player. So you didn't you're, have a great career at Collingwood. Um, but we were mum and I were watching a uh, to cheer ourselves up. We were watching a um, a game from 2011 when uh, Adelaide were up by about four goals, 12 minutes into the last quarter, and Collingwood ended up winning by a million. And Cameron <laughs> Wood was rucking that day in the absence of Darren Jolly. Um, Is that the Andrew and Cracker Mark day? Where he it took was. The mark? And yep. It was Indigenous round. Leon Davis also took a cracking mark. Dale Thomas kicked a barrel from a long, long way away, and it was just. It was that that Collingwood 2011 gig where, um, when we pressed go, it was pretty unbelievable. There, unless we were playing Geelong. Leon Davis, it's unbelievable. It wouldn't happen in this day and age, even with the uncertain off season that we're about to encounter. My memory serves me correctly. Leon Davis was he all Australian in 2011, or was he in he the was. squad? He was all Australian in 2011. Yep, he had 30 kicks. Not 30 disposals, 30 kicks on a Friday night against us. And he was, he out, has, of footy, and he was out of footy the next year because he didn't want to stay. He wanted to go back to Perth. Yeah, well, if you believe and he was what's 30. written, he was, it, it was actually that he didn't, want to, he didn't want to stay. He would rather have gone back to Perth if we were going to make him take a $100,000 haircut. And fair enough, too, when you consider he had just had an All-Australian year. Um. Mm. There was a stat leading up to the grand final that year, and I'm not sure if he held it intact, but he hadn't missed the target with a single kick out the whole year. And 
it was a huge part of our um offense you know from back line to forward line um was was neon leon's kickouts it was a bizarre exit from football and and um one that pains me although um needing him to take a hundred thousand dollar haircut rings true even now because we don't appear to be able to get our list management together and and pay blokes what they deserve yeah i mean i i, I remember writing about it at the time on uh some some corner of the internet that uh, doesn't exist anymore um that i couldn't believe that the the cult it was probably the peak of the cult of youth in football and that this guy who was in the best 22 players in the competition um couldn't find a new home it was just unbelievable i just don't think it would happen in this day and age where i mean after probably gws came into the competition and sort of those type of players intended to end up there for a couple of years. And then you've got what Hawthorne did with Mitchell and Hodge and Birchall and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, we hope you've enjoyed this edition of the uh, reminiscing about 2011 obscure facts on. No. Um, speaking of GWS, incredible news yesterday that Jeremy Cameron is leaving and wants to go to Geelong. Um, lot to get through just with that little tidbit of information, but is this sort of the tipping point for the first iteration of the playing list at GWS? The first is the first crack at the first premiership attempt really over? Are they are they are they now past midnight on Mick Malthouse's famed premiership clock? It's an interesting question, Punna, because I think we actually asked it when they missed the finals on our previous mm. podcast. And as we ran through the clubs, you know, bottom to top. And my answer then was no, because there was enough quality left on the list. And, um, but this is a, this is a little bit of an exodus and it's not, it's not fringe players who are leaving, you know, um, former high draft picks who just can't quite crack it in a team with incredible quality across the board. Although you could argue maybe that's the case with um Jackson Haightley and, and potentially Jai Caldwell. Um, but, you know, Jeremy Cameron is the poster child of that footy club. He's the he's in the sweet spot age-wise, 27, 28. Um, has, you know, was their the first uh, Giants common medalist, first All-Australian from memory. Uh, you know, is, is yeah, it's, it's, it's a very strange decision. Um, and I'm sure it's one he agonised over. Um, but it, they don't often go that way. Personally, um, it's pretty upsetting, I think, that um, that he would abandon that footy club and particularly that he'd go and join Geelong. Um, free agency is having the opposite effect that I think the AFL intended it to have, but one that was probably, you probably could have had the foresight to see that it might go this way. Um, am I riding off the Giants? Look, the, 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 the case against that is that um, Buddy went to Sydney when Sydney had won the flag and Hawthorne won the next flag after that. Um, Gary Ablett left and Geelong found a way to win a flag. Um, it sort of depends what's left behind. Is there enough sort of happiness in the place? Can Leon Cameron still coach them? You know, towards the end of this season, um, it was the injection of youth and a, a young uh, Jake Riccardi who... Um, looked like he might save GWS's season, was crashing packs pretty hard for a young fella. 
Um, they've still got Finless in there. Um, it's it'll be interesting, um, but it might make them a little less predictable. And there's certainly plenty of quality left through that midfield if Caniglio can um, can rediscover his spark. I know you're probably going to argue the opposite, but I'm not going to write them off yet. There's a very important, I think, trend that might emerge. And I'm not talking about the free agency stuff, which I'll get to in a minute in the whole system. I don't, I don't think GWS. If this is if this is 2010, say um, GWS came to the competition in 2002, and it's 2010. Everyone's just 10 years earlier, but the game is as it was then. I don't think there is any circumstance under which GWS allow the circumstances to arise where Jeremy Cameron decides to leave. I just think they would have paid him, you know, they would have just got to the point where it's just like, okay, this is what we need to pay him to, to, to stay. But, you know, he didn't have, a, he didn't have a, a superb season. He wasn't Robinson Crusoe in that regard at the Giants. But I feel like there's a little bit of, do we really want to pay that much for a key forward? In this, when we, you know, maybe we can just, maybe it's just, you just fill your team with good players and you figure it out. And GWS still have absolutely no shortage of good players. They've got players they need to get games into. Um, maybe they can get by with Riccardi and Himmelberg and Finlayson as the as the key forwards. None of them, you know, they're, they're three players I'd, I'd probably be happy to have it. St. Kilroy, I don't know who spot they take, but you know, you'd be happy if they were on your list. So I'm not sure if there's a little, I, I, I'm not sure if G, the GWS Giants did absolutely everything to keep Jeremy Cameron at some stage. And, and you know, everybody, everybody has a value and everybody can be overpaid. Um, there is a, there is an amount Richmond wouldn't pay Dustin Martin. Um, so, Maybe they just got to that point and just looked at it and made a cool calculation, and that, you know, of oh, well, that's too much. We, you know, this is our offer. This is this is what you are worth to us. And if you don't like it, you can leave. The query there is though, because it sounds like um, for all money that uh, GWS are going to match Geelong's offer, which is not astronomical. And so, what GWS have to look at is whatever it is causing the disharmony that um, that made him want to leave, if it's not financial, um, and it sounds like it isn't, GWS are going to match so that Geelong will cough, cough up some picks or some players by the sounds of it. They want some, um, you know, some young players that um, fit their age profile, I suppose. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like entirely a financial thing. I think Geelong has has obviously built um, a culture that um, that players want to be a part of. That they keep talking up that ability to kind of stay out of the public eye, um, which seems crazy because it's such a football town. Um, but they, yeah, they 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 draw players in every year and somehow find a way to pay them. And I don't, and and that sort of dictates that Jeremy Cameron's not going to get paid the earth down at Geelong because where the hell would they find the money from if they are using the same salary cap that the other teams are? Yeah. Um, and the 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 amount the, the the length and the the amount of money in the contract offered to Cameron is what is the major determining factor 
in terms of the free agency compensation that GWS would be entitled to. Although I think GWS, you know, Geelong aren't standing there, standing there with their cards close to their chest in so much as GWS know the draft hand Geelong have got because they've got these draft picks that they've got sitting there as a result of the Tim Kelly deal. Geelong, are, Geelong have two or three first-round picks this year, so which might have been another part of the calculation as far as GWS was concerned. Yes, there is there is a problem, I guess, with the with the, the, the sheer volume of players who are leaving GWS because you've got Zach Williams, you've got Aiden Core, you've got other lesser lights who are being talked about as leaving and they might, you know, maybe the money that was meant for Cameron might go to them now and their heads might be turned back. Is there a club that's better placed to hold their nerve and tell a club, you will, this is what we want for the player, and if you don't give it to him, we're going to let him walk to the draft and we'll let the chips fall where they may. Is there a club better placed to allow someone like Jeremy Cameron to leave for nothing than GWS? That's a good question. I hadn't considered it as an option, and I don't know whether it'll happen. I'm a bit torn on that because Geelong's the classic example here of the club that just seems to get deals done, um, to have players nominate their footy club, um, to pay what they're worth, um, you know, to to sort it out with the rest of the playing list for players to, you know, maybe take unders, take a little haircut this year, we'll make it up to you later, we'll compete for a flag again, um, you know. Um, when they brought in Patrick Dangerfield, Dangerfield didn't want the Crows to be shafted and so they traded for him and they traded some really healthy um, picks and players for him. It's, um, I, I, I don't know. I think there's, there's this, there's long been held this kind of, you know, and the classic example is the way that Dodoro um, does his trading and drafting where it's just, you know, hard nose on, on all offers and, um, you know, he's already gone to Carlton and, you know, demanded some pretty crazy high asking prices for uh, Saad, who wants to leave. Um, he's going to do the same with Danaher in Brisbane that he did with Danaher in Sydney last year. And it's like at some point you've got to respect the wishes of the players at your footy club and um, allow them to go and just make sure the price is right. I think Geelong... When they match the offer, GWS, I think Geelong will stump up a proper price for Jeremy Cameron that's fair and equitable to the Giants. And maybe that's another reason why they get their deals done. It's okay to deal with Geelong. It's not a disaster to deal with them. Um, I don't know. I think there's something to look at with, with Geelong's whole philosophy down there, even though it pains me um, <laughs> to see them you know, succeed on field for such a long time and to succeed off field. Um, with you know Stephen Wells and Co down there, just getting it right time after time after. Yes, well done to Geelong. Having said that, five years after the Dangerfield deal, Adelaide finished last, and Geelong are in a grand final. So, I think that worked out for one of the two uh, participants in that trade more than the other. Um, he didn't Adelaide... play that grand final though, did he? So there's another only has themselves to blame. It's not just Dangerfield missing that's cooked that footy club. Yeah, fair enough. The Geelong situation, in terms of it, and, and and we often hear this, and we heard it with Richmond when they got Tom Lynch. Um, uh, blokes have decided to take less to win a premiership. You know, 
it's it's it is admirable behavior from an individual player and it is smart business by a football club it also completely renders the salary cap pointless in its one of its objectives which is as a de facto talent cap and I've long been going on about this, and I've written about this in various places. Uh, there's, there's, I think, I've, I think there's a couple of articles on the Raw which I've written, which is still up there about about this sort of thing. And that is, and this is not going to change anytime soon because the whole industry has been shrunk, and you know, by the by the events of the year. But the salary cap won't work until the amount of money that players make is enough to turn their heads until the amount of money is 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 sufficient that only the color of it is important rather than who's giving it to you we've seen two we've seen two situations where this happened and that was with gary ablett and tom scully where the difference between the two offers was in the vicinity of seven eight hundred thousand dollars a year and you know, once once the the agent has taken his fee for his or her very valuable work, and the tax man's taken his pound of flesh, that's still eight thousand dollars a week in hand, and that's the sort of money that can turn a pe- person's head. If Jeremy Cameron is leaving GWS to go to Geelong for something like a hundred thousand dollars a year less, it's just not enough of an incentive. And if players are just, you know, if there's 30 blokes at Geelong who decide to take $5,000 a year less to try and fit this guy into the salary cap, it's like $100 a week when everything's said and done. And the salary cap just can't work like that, especially when you've got a increasingly compromised draft through, you know, for, you know, through first of all the father-son, which is not something I support and which Geelong have benefited more than pretty much any other club in terms of actual on-field success. Second of all, the academies, which were introduced to try and generate interest in football at a grassroots level amongst the teams that are north of the Murray. And the problem is GWS were given an area which is traditional football area. Um, for example, Jacob Hopper, is a GWS Academy draftee. His family lives in southern New South Wales, but he went to school at St. Patrick's here in Ballarat, which is where you go if one of the places you go to school if you want to play football for a living. Um, he's not from a developing market. Um, and then you've had this sort of next-gen multicultural and indigenous academies created for the other 14 clubs to try and play catch-up, which is it, it's just it's adding stupid to stupid. Um, that, I mean, that's how I feel, and 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 this is this is part of the reason why Geelong have made finals fifteen out of the last seventeen years. Their three premierships were built on their the ability of past players to sire sons, uh, among other things. Um, and then and then they've built on that success by getting players to come for what for probably less than market value, and that is certainly what it sounds like Jeremy Cameron's going to going to Geelong for. He's not getting paid what he could get at GWS or another club. And I think Tom Lynch was the same. So at Richmond. So that's how I feel. And I think like if we could get to a situation where the draft is uncompromised and the team that has the worst record gets the first access to the best players. And we could get to a point which is longer term now, which is 
a salary cap where players are paid a sufficient amount that they make decisions about where they want to play based more on how much they get paid, then they will go where that money is and that money will be at clubs on the bottom of the ladder and things will even out. So is this argument that you're making, I saw a, I saw a tweet surrounding the fact that a, a lot of clubs feel that when their list is not much chop, that they shouldn't have to pay anywhere near that 95% of the salary cap um, that they're forced to pay mm. um, because your the war chest, in inverted commas, can't exist for your footy club because how much money can it possibly be? How much money can be left over? Mm. Um yeah, well, look, I, I think I think the ninety five percent floor is more about on field product. I think the AFL is worried that a team, particularly, you know, it's, if if a team like West Coast, who are sort of impervious to external shock, because of the strength of their balance sheet, um, came to a decision that you know their list needed to be turned over in a drastic way, that they would for a year, if they went into a season coming into thinking that rather than happening mid-season, they would drastically reduce payroll for a season to, you know, fill a team that looked a lot like, on field, would look a lot like the first GWS team, where it was like three or four 30-year-olds, one or two mid-20-year-olds, and a whole bunch of 18, 19-year-olds, save a lot of money, get the number one draft pick, and just, you know, and then turbocharge a rebuild in that way while sort of getting beaten by 120 points every week. Uh, but you, I don't think you can be impervious to that kind of season. Mm-hmm. You well, need only look as far as Adelaide to show you how little patience um, supporters have um, for, for seasons like that. Mm, um, but I don't, we, don't, we don't really know what 2020 Adelaide, what the reaction would have been in any other normal year, you know. By the time Adelaide were playing home games again, everyone, you know, there was there was like ten thousand people left in the stadium, and everyone was desperate to go to the footy in Adelaide. So as we are everywhere. So you know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. And we did talk at the start of the year about, you know, the the, the sort of marriage between the sort of odd balance between Adelaide's ability to go through a hard rebuild, considering they're they're one of the stronger. Fight clubs financially in the league with one of the strongest memberships versus what that membership would tolerate in terms of non-competitiveness. But in the end, it's sort of over quickly. And I think the last month of Adelaide would have given them plenty of hope for next year, whether that's well-placed or wrongly placed. But I mean, that's what I feel about the 95%. I think it could be lower and they've tried to use it as an advantage, allow clubs to use an advantage with the, if you bank 5%, then you can spend it. But you have to spend it, I think, pretty much straight away. And I think St Kilda got into a situation through the through their peak Richo years when they were to, through 2016, 2017, when they were looking to add that sort of that last piece, that player to put them over the top and didn't land them. You know, they had picks seven and eight on the table for a whole bunch of people, including like Andrew Gaff and Josh Kelly and Nat, Nat Fife, who weren't able to land it. So then they were left with the situation where because they had already banked the 5%, they then had to pay 100%. So, that, you know, they had to give, they had to, you know, he have some more money. And so 
I just think they're sort of chasing their tail with the system and it's sort of become like whack-a-mole and there's an issue and then they whack it and the system the the the, the system worked best in the 2000s when you know the draft was reasonably uncompromised I'm I know I'm fighting a losing battle on the father son rule because a lot of people love it because because of traditionalism and romanticism and all that sort of thing but I back for a club who's had two of them in 30 years but that's the, uh, I think that's that's why you're fighting a losing battle on it. Yeah. <clears throat> because your 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 heart's in the argument. Um mm. as as much as everybody else is who's seen the way it can succeed. Um And the I don't funny mind thing is the sun, but I do I think you're right. We're we're chasing our tails and if but if anything is going to make the AFL sit up and take notice, it's a star player leaving their their babies, the the um the GWS Giants, you know. Only a little while after Tom Lynch and Stephen May walked out on the Gold Coast, um, we need those clubs to succeed. And Stewie Jew's got some good people around him up there, and you know um, they've also um, changed their draft philosophies and um, recruited pretty well. And you know they look like they might sort it out. But we can't have those clubs struggling, uh, and we we can't have the rich getting richer. Um, if it is the end of the first Giants flag tilt. Um, changes will have to be made because that wasn't what the AFL intended and they certainly didn't intend for Geelong to be um, contending along with Richmond while poaching the best players from their baby clubs. Mm. Yes, and you know Richmond have two, I mean two foundational parts of their team uh, ex-Gold Coast players. I mean Tom Lynch was best on ground in that prelim last year um, and got better and better as the seasons got, went on. And Dion Presti was their best and fairest last year. So those are those are guys they who not only ex Gold Coast who they directly got from the Gold Coast. So not counting Josh Caddy, he was a pretty important part of their 2017 team, but came via Geelong. Um, someone made a really interesting point on on a, I can't remember what I was listening to, but it's just like. Richmond are winning flags with ex Gold Coast players, and Carlton can't make the finals with all these ex GWS players, and <laughs> and in Essendon as well, they've got Sheil and Smith, um, the ex GWS player who finished top three in the Brownlow this year was Jack Steele, who's going to resemble more the Caldwells or the Hatleys as that type. He was a guy who who had barely tipped his toe in the water as an AFL footballer before he moved on after the end of contract one. So. And I think was Academy too. So he would have been handy in the in the orange this year, that's for sure. He would have, and he was you know, he was probably unlucky not to get the three votes in that last game of the year against them, because I think he was pretty handy, but um it's always nice to see a big bloke get three votes. So he was yeah, he was kept out by Rowan Marshall. Here, here. God um, what happened to Nick Natanui? I'm not sure. I, I gotta be honest. <laughs> I for the first time I think ever I watched the, the Brownlow at home instead of at Mum's, and so I'm at home and I'm a cord cutter. I don't have a, I don't have the aerial plugged into the television or the satellite plugged into the television anymore, and the Brownlow and the Grand Final are not on any streaming services. So I was watching the Brownlow on my phone on the AFL app. So I wasn't paying super close attention to who was getting votes at other clubs other than, you know, oh. Jack Steele got a few votes. That's great. And uh, Lockie Neal got more votes. So, um, I mean, he was, in that knew he was incredible against us in that second last game of the year. And 
I'm, I understand. I, did you get the two votes in that game? I know Kelly got the three and was always going to get the three, but I think Gaff got the one. I mean, they won that game with about five blokes. So, um, and, you know, Nick Nat's 30, 31. I mean, it was a tremendous season from him to sort of come back after, you know, two or three really interrupted years. I'd just love to know how, how you miss him if you're an umpire. He's, uh, you know, <laughs> by all reports, he's the nicest bloke in the world. He's right there under your nose. He's kicking goals out of the ruck. He's leaping over other ruckmen. His, his influence over, um, the games I watched West Coast play this year was just, I mean, he killed you guys. Oh, just destroyed us. Destroyed a high quality ruckman, supposedly, you know, um, in a down year, no question, but made him look second rate. And it was a three vote performance. Uh, blind Freddie knew that so um, he ended up with a remarkably low amount of votes um, which is sort of classic in that you know key position and and um, Ruckman don't tend to poll but um, I, if one was going to I don't know why it wasn't Nick Nat it, look I, th- I think I'm, I mean I have ventured also on the Roar in an article I have ventured a, a reason that I think and this pinpointed the the the, the the date, the sort of the year when the Brownlow changed. Um, I was born in 1980 and I grew up watching Brownlows and I grew up and I saw uh, Tony Lockett winning Brownlow from full forward and I saw Jim Steins and Jim Steins win the, win the Brownlow as a sort of a, a ruckman ruck rover and then the next year Scott Wine won the Brownlow as a traditional ruckman drop behind the play take marks and then the year after that Gavin Wanganin won a Brownlow from a back pocket. Um, you were able to win Brownlow medals uh, playing other positions. It was it was hard to win them from a key posi- from a key position. There's like two or three key position players who ever won them, but you could certainly win one from a back pocket. You could win one from a wing. Um, you could win one from a half back flank. You could certainly win one from the ruck. And there were a lot of ruckmen who who had won them in the preceding years. Guys like Peter Moreland, Thompson, Gary Dempsey, um, Barry Round. And then in 1994, things got different. Um, also, when I was growing up, the winner of the Brownlow normally polled about a vote a game. 22 games, normally around the 22 vote mark. And then in 1994, Greg Williams won the Brownlow with 30 votes. And since then, you normally can't get onto the podium with like without 26 or 27. This year was different because there were fewer games for everyone except Lockie Neal, who in 17 games polled 31 votes. Now, is I mean, is this important? I'll, I'll let you decide. I reckon if you're listening to this podcast, you probably think it's important. Um, I'm going to tell you why it's important, because it's it makes it almost impossible to compare eras when the voting system is the same but completely different. So Greg Healy in 1988 wins, I think, with, 22 votes the year after Paul oh, win 20 I think Paul Couch won with 22 in 1989 are they like did they have half the season Lockie Neal just had I posed that question the other day and yeah. I, like I, I went straight I'm a loser of the Brownlow actually but how could we ignore um I think it's Lee Matthews 1977 season mm. where we're playing in the midfield he chalked up a lazy 91 goals and um I think we were on the double voting um, at that stage with the Brownlow, but um, 91 goals from the guts was only good enough for fourth in the Brownlow. 
So that's the. Let's see, it was this. It was the one Teasdale one, wasn't it? Because seventy six and seventy seven were the years that there were the double votes. The first two years there were two umpires. They'd let them both vote three, two, one. So. Mm. Yeah, Lee Matthews became equal fourth with Len Thompson and Bruce Duell. Twenty yeah, handy, isn't it? Twenty-five votes behind the winner. Now half that. So Teasdale's polled fifty-nine votes, which is almost thirty votes. He's had what is it? What was an astonishing year historically, considering how many votes Bartlett finished second on forty-five. Who with Matthews is in the debate for the greatest players never to win one. Matthews polls thirty-four votes which is like 17. We don't know the three, two ones from those years because for some reason that someone much older than me will have to explain when they did the count, they read, they read out all the one votes first and then all the two votes first and then all the three votes, (laughs) which is just, (laughs) let's kick all the behinds first in a game and then we'll kick goals. Um, that top ten of that Brownlow that year. I mean, Bartlett, Duell, Matthews, Simon Madden, Gary Dempsey, Lynn Thompson. There's a there's a bit of talent there. David Dench. Yeah. Um, but they were still <laughs> starting talent. Year. But, you, but you you know you, you did you had the opportunity. I mean, I think Lee Matthews should have won that Brownlow. I think there mm. were years where Kerry should have won Brownlows. Um, so we don't. We we do miss great play from time to time. It just feels like um, the media's role in footy um, and the kind of um, day-to-day news cycle and, and um, players' names being um, thrown up for possible, you know, Brownlow wins after the first round um, sort of means that right. it's impossible to think the umpires don't play into that. Right. Neil's had a superb year, a consistent year. He hasn't missed a beat. I don't have a problem with him winning the Brownlow. Neither but, do I. Um, no, I, I don't. I don't personally think that Neil's season this year compares favourably even with Dusty's from seventeen, Nat Fife's from fifteen. You know, some of the Judd years um, when they were winning Brownlows by a fair margin. That's what it looked like to me. Mm. Um, I think there's been there's been players this year that have have, have been superb um, and 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 been missed in the Brownlow. Um, and, you know, you start to ask the question because um, umpires should just be there to make decisions um, on the field. I don't know how they got the Brownlow in the first place, really. Um, but surely, as these awards live a little longer, the AFL Players MVP and the Coaches Award are the ones you really want to win. Um, if I was a player, that's what I would want. Um, the, the history of the Brownlow is one thing, but the merit of the award... Um, I want the coaches to think I'm the best player. I want my peers to think I'm the best player. Fair enough. Um, so, yeah, I think Neil won all of them anyway. Yeah, he did. But um, um, the margin would have been a lot closer. I just I, – I, I, I tend to have a more traditional feeling about the Brownlow than, than probably what you've just voiced, though. I don't I – don't, I'm I'm, I don't have a huge problem with great players never winning a Brownlow. Um, and, and Matthews and Carey – you know, who are probably two of the five best footballers ever. Um, both like dishing it out. So they they did, you know, they did make umpires' jobs harder to do, the, you know, the, the, the day job of an umpire, which is to adjudicate the game. Um, and I can sort of understand that from a sort of level. It'd be great if it, if it didn't happen. 
because I, I you know if you're the best player on the round, you should be getting the, the, the three votes. And if you belted someone, the tribunal suspends you and that rules you ineligible for the Brownlow and that takes care of the fairest criteria of the award. Um, I will say, and I th- I, it has seemed to become more pronounced in recent years, but I, I this is the theory I posited a few years ago and that when Dangerfield won with, I think, five votes, you know, Neil would have probably got past this year if the season had been full length. Could have got 40. Yeah, well, he was on 40 pace, which is just insanity. Mm. Mm. Um, 1994 is the year they went to three umpires. And how do you resolve a difference between two people who disagree? I just think there were, there were situations, you know, in the, in the 80s where someone would get three votes and you might have watched the game on television, you might have been in the game and you thought, he barely touched it. There, were just, there would be these anomalies, um, which sort of added to the romanticism of Brownlow Knight in some way, shape or form. It just doesn't happen anymore. I mean, Neil fully, 100% realised every vote he was entitled to, and he might be the first player ever to get to that level, but other players are, you know, I I just don't think, you know, Dusty in 2017, or Dangerfield in 2016, Fife in 2015, the the Judd and Swan years where they won the wrong year in 2010-2011, they just don't seem to miss any votes. And I just think it just sort of, I'm not one, I, I, I don't think it would take, I mean, I think the players do obviously take the MVP very seriously. Um, I don't, I, I feel some of them still need to go to school so they can learn the definition of valuable as opposed to best, but yeah. Um, but the Brownlow will always be the award that has that, that atmosphere around it. And I don't think any amount of analysis is going to change that or, or even this, I mean, it's a crazy year. So everybody will sort of have an asterisk next to everything, whether it's warranted or not, but no one's going to think any less of the Brownlow because Neil got 31 votes despite its complete absurdity. Um, because it's still, you know, it's still the award when it got, you know, whether it's next year or the year after, it will go back to being the the big huge function with the with the partners and the focus on that and the and the everyone in the black tie and the and the the toast and the the music from the Untouchables and the whole you know back at Crown and everything will, everything will just be back as it was and as it were. I was just like. I just like the umpires, and this also goes for how they adjudicate games. Um, they really like a winner and the 50-50 free kicks tend to go to the team that's winning um, not just the team that puts their head over the ball and you notice the momentum changes in games and then the free kick momentum changes and yes they certainly are susceptible to momentum as anybody yeah. is and to crowd and, noise as anybody is yeah, but the momentum of the scoreboard has been more obvious to see this year because the crowd has been taken away or diminished. Mm. So, you know, and you just notice it. I mean, I used to I used to describe it when I was, you know, when Robert Harvey was playing where he get a free kick that he probably didn't deserve. And it's just like, well, you don't win two brown lines, you don't get those free kicks. 
yeah, it's the same people making the decision. So I think you're right in that I think that they they don't miss um, they don't miss votes for someone who they're reading about all the time. But um, I would just love to see um, dominant games by key forwards, particularly. Um, but you know, dominant games by great backmen and certainly dominant games by ruckman recognised. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want it to be midfielders by a street. It's not that easy to win games of football. Um, so, in that regard, I think the, I think the coaches award could, um, could be the one that the players um, end up really wanting to win, um, especially when the names on that list are truly the greats. Um, you know, Brownlows have always meant a lot in football, but if you but if you can rattle off great names, um, Franklin, Carey, Matthews, um, to rattle off a few just straight off the top who um, who never got a look in, you know, it, it takes the shine off it for me. I mean, I don't, I don't. If anything, the the Brownlow has the opposite problem at the moment. Is it's not that the greats aren't winning, and it's that. Uh, it's probably not even a problem, but I just, I tend to think that's not that's not the issue. You know, the last twenty one. You know, since since the since I suggest the Brownlow change in nineteen ninety four, the only guys who've won it who probably stick out a little bit. Uh, well, Woden in 2000 and Prittis in 2014. Prittis has yeah. more tackles than anyone, or retired with more tackles than anyone in the history of the game. So, um, Prittis was and, a very good player, but he's yeah, not and, in the league with the other guy. Yeah, and it was the year that Abbott did his shoulder and Fife broke his leg. So, mm. there was a bit going on. Um, well, Woden was a more conventional victory in so much as, um, there was the classic, bloke who lost by a vote who got 39 touches in a win and didn't poll um which was scott west um who you know probably would have been thought about differently if he'd won a brownlow and probably deserved to win a brownlow but other than that it's been cooney's probably another one that um i mean was it was a very good player at his best but but potentially never scaled the heights um, of, of some of the others, and that was a that was a good brown though. I enjoyed that brown though because uh, Richo came Richo. storming home. Yeah, exactly. We've we've all had horses in the race with our clubs uh, in Brownlows where we've had really good teams, and a guy who you think should win the Brownlow, and they get robbed because there's just too many good guys on the team, and they just you had three votes today, and I think that's what happened in 2008 with Ablett. Um, is that um, and there were just too many other guys at Geelong taking, you know, who were who also polled really well, and there was no one really taking votes off Cooney, who yeah. you know, who you know, they still they won fifteen or sixteen games that season. There was a lot of there was a lot of you know maximum votes on offer for the Bulldogs that year, and he was very good. But no, he you know, I, I, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I, I, I but um, you know. You look at look at the eighties, which is the last full decade we have before that of any time. You know, Brian Wilson, um, <laughs> Brad Hardy, but then Brad Hardy. Hardy's, Brad yeah. Hardy's in the Hall of Fame, which is another yeah, two hour really. rant, two hour rant podcast for another time. Um, he didn't I'll, make Malthouse's uh, 
is that is that right? Isn't Malthouse put up the the um, team of the best players he coached and had? Correct. Correct. Yeah. But yeah, they did. They they didn't get on by the end. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Dipper was a good footballer, but <laughs> Dipper has a brownlow. He won with seventeen votes. Yeah. This is just it was one of those insane years. Um, It'd be great to watch a Brownlow like that again. It would truly be great to watch a Brownlow like that. Mm. Even even if there was one where, because it's it's infinitely possible for all these midfielders to to blast at the same time. We've got three or four guys approaching 30, um, in round it's, twenty or so. It sort of great. happened. The two years where that sort of happened, uh, a ninety six where there was five blokes within a vote. Yeah. Um, what was it? Heard. Voss, McKernan, 21. McKernan is a ruckman. Um, sort of disproving my theory. And then Burke and Grant on 20. Yeah. And then 2003, the, the triple dead heat, um, with like Crawford and Wanganin a vote behind. Yeah, sensation. Yeah. yeah. Give us so, one of those. Yep. Yeah. Actually, that's enough about the Brownlow. Um, the... I've, I've got another, one more topic that doesn't involve finals. That I've got on my run sheet, and we've talked about GWS's list management. You sort of touched on them while we were talking about GWS, and that is there is another club that is having an exodus, and that's Essendon. Um, mm. There's been, I mean, I, can, I mean, I really could come off the long run as far as Essendon's concerned, all their troubles, and you know, if Essendon supporters are patting themselves on the back and go, I, if, if they're getting themselves to sleep at night with the safe in the knowledge that everything will be okay because Kevin Sheedy's back on the board, then I'm, look, I'm, I don't, I don't begrudge anyone's sleep, but um, you are kidding yourself. Um, Kevin Sheedy's the problem, as far as I'm concerned, is that they haven't won a final that he hasn't coached at them since 1968. The problem is that they are essentially, for all intents and purposes, the Kevin Sheedy Football Club. They are created in his image and likeness and they can only seem to succeed if he's in control there needs to be a, there needs to be an identity at that club which is Essendon not Essendon with Kevin Sheedy because you know the organizations can continue on forever but people are finite just to bring down the mood completely <laughs> but you know he's finished being a coach and now they say oh we'll get him on the board you know I'm sure they'll come up with some wonderful ideas for three or four completely meaningless blockbusters, um, none of which that'll involve St Kilda. Um, but they need they need to they need to start from a, a blank piece of paper, and you know the the from and one of their behaviours that they keep demonstrating again and again, whether it was you know, trying to negotiate some outcome for their players after the drugs scandal, which the Cronulla Sharks managed to do when they won an NRL premiership two or three years later, um, right up until, no, 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 we kept our list together. We're, you know, this is what it'll take to get Joe Danaher. And if you can't give a wheel, back ourselves in to turn his head around. Well, that didn't work. And it was never going to work. Spot on. I think and, they're in desperate trouble, and it's a it's a it's a really unhappy place with four smiles on it. I think we talked about it in the last podcast, and we ran over Essendon, but you know the exodus is um, is becoming clearer, and we can probably mm. talk about North Melbourne 
um, as a nice segue here if we wanted this podcast to go for 11 hours as well. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there, there's, it's forced. It's forced and it's not – you're right. There's no identity. And talking to Bombers friends of mine who um, – Long may they stay down because they're insufferable when they're when they're going all right. <laughs> um, yes, and and I think that's the issue is I'm of that age where when I was my formative years they were really really good, you know. Same, and that's what and that stings because they they were just they're, they're in high school with their jumpers on and their scarves on and telling me how good Matthew Lloyd was and how good James Heard was and. And we weren't much chopped when they were really good. And, somehow, you, uh, somehow you generally used to beat them on Anzac Day, though, despite the fact you guys weren't much chopped and they were pretty good. Well, that's it. And 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 that was everything to Collingwood supporters. And I love that the worm has turned now because Essendon can beat us these days. And Collingwood supporters kind of go, yeah, okay, cool. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll just play finals again um, like we like we often do. And... Um, and you won't, or if you do, you won't win one. Um, but it's turned into their grand final from being our grand final, Anzac Day. Mm. Um, but yeah, my Essendon mates are sad sacks, really. They um, they've had enough, and I, I quite like reading Rowan Connolly's um, takes on it all because I think he's aware that the problem is is far deeper than. Um, being able to paper over it with Kevin Sheedy. I don't see a huge problem with him coming back, to be honest. I don't know if, if Kevin Sheedy is the identity, but I think the idea that Essendon people think it'll all be okay because Sheedy's back. I mean, they all thought it would be okay because Heard was coming back. They were in a bad bad spot when he came back, you know, that after the Matty Knights era. I mean, um, success will and sustain success, and we need to we need to state that there was it was the first 20 25 years under Sheedy were an extraordinary generation of success by the Eston Football Club and they that needs to be acknowledged um but it has generated you know you've got this fan base um who have not only become accustomed to success but have become entitled and it's manifested itself in some of the most dangerous ways. And I, 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 I'm happy to be accused of overblown hyperbole. But Matthew Knights, who I don't think was a bad coach, and I think like Brett Ratton and some others would probably be a much better coach the second time around. I don't think the, the opportunity is going to come his way again. I'm not sure if he wants the opportunity, but I think he would be a better coach the second time around. But he wasn't a bad coach. Um, he wasn't a great coach at the time. But it was he was on a hiding nothing because he was following Sheedy, who had sort of become this immortal at Essendon, and preceding Heard. And then, yeah. and then, as two thousand and ten sort of deteriorated towards the end. I mean, like a lot of those two thousand years, except for maybe one or two, where they were really bad towards the end of Sheedy's reign. Essendon was sort of hovering around the finals up until the last three or four rounds, and then fell away. And in 2010, it was just like, okay, well, we can't have this anymore. And then chatter started coming around, and I don't, you know, I don't know where these things generate. But Heard was almost appointed by acclamation by the Essendon members, and in my opinion, that gave him 
a huge sense of confidence in what he was able to do. As in, I, I you know, I am able, I am able to do what I think is the right thing to do and the best thing to do for the club with very few checks and balances. And that was sort of the genesis of how you how they got themselves into the situation they were in. There's never been a true bending of the knee after that in terms of, you know, an acknowledgement of what they did wrong from, you know, a full acknowledgement. And, and now you get them repeating these same mistakes. You get them, I don't know, I think you're even at the point now where, you know, Obviously, the, the two of the big three or four clubs when I was growing up were Carlton Essendon, and, and that's just not the case anymore. Um, but Carlton seemed to be more humble, even by a smidgen, um, than Essendon. And could just be that they've Essendon, been down for longer. There's a whole. There's that could a be whole, possible. There's thirty year olds who who haven't seen any success at that club. Mm. But and uh, and it also Essendon have an on field problem, and I think. I noticed this when we played them this year. I also watched a lot of the Melbourne game at the end of the year. They had a very ordinary list. I mean, a lot of the accusations that were made at St Kilda uh, through the Richo era could very much, could very well and very accurately be put at, at Essendon. And some of those players who are there weren't always that way. But, you know, you've got a bloke like Merritt, the aforementioned Sheil and Smith. Um, I just feel like, you know, they're, they're just, they're just average non-damaging footballers now. Um, My take is, is slightly different in that I think um, it, it's right that they need to acknowledge what they did wrong. Um, but I don't, I don't think they need to do that externally. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't need them to say sorry for what took place, but I think internally they absolutely need to start there because I think all the players you just mentioned, um, along with several others, um, you know, they, they had a good list. It's what frustrates um, so many Bombers supporters is that they're like, look at the list on paper. It's really, really good. And I'm like, well, yeah, but on paper from when? you know, prior to the drug saga. It's not like we've seen good football from them really since. Um, and Essendon people are bemoaning the fact that they saw more fight from the team when when it was essentially, when they had uh, the whole list, you know, serving their suspension. Um, they have to own up to it internally and they, they have to acknowledge the kind of hurt and suffering that has um, impacted their players so massively. This is the fourth thing that I'm talking about. I think I spoke about on the last podcast. Mm. A Heppel, Heppel forcing a smile um, and trying to captain their club the way that Cochin captains Richmond. When you're winning every week, that's awesome. Do you know what I mean? And that's clearly a Richmond thing. And they've poached Richmond coaches and they've, I don't know, there's, there's this weird copycat vibe down there. They've got to find their identity and it starts by saying sorry internally. Yeah. Um, and trying to rediscover something from there could be really powerful. Um, but they, they need to do it. I mean, if they want to succeed, they have my permission to not change from their current, uh, construction. Now we may seems inevitable that they will though, doesn't it? So like in a way, it seems inevitable that 
that Carlton will be good again and that Essendon will be good again. And that's just how we grew up. Mm. They were they were they're massive clubs with massive, you know, that draw massive crowds um, that have had sustained success and 16 flags and all that gear. But, but I wonder if there's a there's a there's an age group of people who 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 think that Melbourne will come good again. Yeah, um, but not because just, they were so good. But but not just that, Cameron. You're watching on a Friday night, and Carlton's playing in a big game, and they're four goals down. You know, at the start of the last quarter, and they kick the first, and you think, here comes Carlton. That that's what that's what and and you know they're coming and that's 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 the Carlton I grew up with it's the Essendon I grew up with, it's that confidence of being a big club and having the runs on the board and the and the cups in the trophy cabinet, and it's just not the same anymore. The, the you know, I we beat Essendon St Kilda beat Essendon this year hands and heels, and I you know, and some of this might be due to the weird year and all that sort of thing, but I can't remember a more routine victory against Essendon than our victory this year. They've always been events, even when they've been terrible. You know, they fin- you know, Kevin Shee likes to talk about the fact they finished 14th in 97, despite the fact they, they f- essentially finished eight, like a goal and two behinds out of the finals that year. Um, and we played in the grand final. We beat them about a third of way through the season at the MCG, and it was an enormous, significant event. And any time you beat Essendon or Carlton, it was an enormous, significant event. And it's just not the same anymore. And that's where they need to get back to. You, you know, this, this, that's that's what being a big club means. It's this, you know, here we come. You know, that no lead. You know, the, your your full goal lead is not might be safe against Fremantle or the Gold Coast or someone like that. It's not safe against us because we're coming, and once we kick two, the crowd will just take us over the edge and over the top. It's interesting because they were a they were a great on field club. Both Carlton and Essendon were a great on field club much more recently than Collingwood was. Mm. You, you can you can identify that Collingwood's two flags in 60-odd years, despite being really competitive that whole time um, and and making a lot of grand finals. You know, depends what your definition of success is, isn't it? But we were a truly great club up until we started losing grand finals. Um, And Essendon and Carlton were, you know, that same dominant, scary force, you know, going back not so long ago. So it Mm. doesn't... It's no guarantee for future success in the way that you um, perhaps would assume or the way it felt when we were growing up. It might be time for a new wave. Mm. Uh, quite possibly. And uh, I mean, enough talking. <laughs> um, I want to I want to come off the long run once more. And there's been a lot of discussion, uh, particularly after the last weekend, the preliminary finals, about the pre-finals bye. Um, two teams that played their one game in 26 days both went out the two semi-final winners of the two grand finalists. Um, and this is, since 2016, this has, this has tended to happen more often. Um, let's just go through the, let's go to the video tape. Um, <laughs> yeah, so both semi-finalists winners, but you know, both uh, qualifying final winners lose in 2016, neither make the grand final. 2017 went chalk. 2018 Richmond lose having the week off, having the uh, having the week two of the finals off last year uh, 
You guys lose to GWS having the week off in the middle and this year both uh, Port Adelaide Brisbane lose. Home finals against interstate travelling teams uh, having the week off in the middle of the finals. This year will be the first year ever under the final eight system where no team will finish in the same position they finished the home and away ladder in. Interesting. So they'll all finish in different spots. Um, I think I think it was introduced for the wrong reasons and it should be scrapped. And Rob Harding, I think, suggested on SCN during the week that he would prefer to see two buys during the season, and I completely agree with him. Yes, I think this is a short discussion because I've seen – I saw your tweet about it and um, I agree that it would be much better to see um, eight-game – um, rounds with two teams having the buy for the majority of the year. Um, it, it's interesting though because you go back um, to the first week of the finals when we legitimately couldn't confidently tip any team except I was pretty confident that West Coast would win, um, and I was wrong. Um, that was a that was the best weekend of footy for the year, and it's not going to be matched. Um, it was. It was superb, and it was due to the pre-finals buy. So the people who are for it are always going to talk up um, a week like that, you know, a, a brilliant um, first weekend of the finals and say it's worthwhile. Um, we also got to um, share home the Darling Western Bulldogs, um, who were the first team to kind of, under this new system, um, get a win from outside the top four. Um, in an amazing run, in truly the, one of the best um, flags I've seen in my lifetime. Um, it was sensational. It was the best possible advertisement for the pre-finals buy because it happened to Footscray, not mm-hmm. because Hawthorne managed to pinch one from seventh um, to get their fourth flag in a row. Um, I, I'm with you um, overall because, um, you know, I think it's a blood on the game that suddenly – um, it's not that big a deal um, booking that um, double chance and home final. Um, I, I, so, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I think it was introduced for the wrong reasons, which was about teams leaving players out at the last stage. I mean, I'm one of these people who doesn't seem to, I, that thought tanking was overblown as a problem. And what what happened in 2013 with Fremantle uh, against St Kilda, and what happened in 2015 with North Melbourne playing Richmond. Um, was not tanking at all. It's just prioritizing a finals win over a home and away win, which is something that nobody seems to have a problem with in America when teams have already made the playoffs in the last week of the NFL season and you know their starting quarterback plays a series and then goes off. Um, the result yeah, of the game mind, is that's important. A good yeah, yeah, we just need to become more mature about our discussions about these sort of things. So I, I mean, as I said, I'd like to see the pre-finals by gone and two. Two buys during the season spread over the middle 18 weeks of the season, which would allow greater flexibility in terms of scheduling Thursday nights and also Queen's birthday. You know, Melbourne and Collingwood could play on the Monday and then they had to buy the next week. So they wouldn't be playing a five-day break or a six-day break. Uh, Richmond, Melbourne, the, the whenever the, you know, the night before Anzac Day, Essendon, Collingwood, Anzac Day, they would have a buy, which would mean they wouldn't be going on a short week before those games. Um, the, 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 the actual bigger problem here, and this was one that predates uh, the introduction of the finals by, is that since Geelong won the premiership in 2007, two teams have finished first and won the premiership. 
that's we've got 13 seasons. The last 13 seasons, two teams have finished first and won the Premiership, and one of those needed two games to do it. So I grew up with the Final Five system, and the team that finished first not only got a double chance, they got automatic entry into week two of the finals. They were one win away from a grand final just by finishing first. They tended they tended to, uh, yeah. So, so the uh, team finishing first in those years under the Final Five system, there were 19 years. They won the flag 10 out of 19 times, and another five times they were the beaten grand finals. Um, under the current system, the team that's finished first has made what has won the premiership six times out of 21 and made lost the grand final eight times. So it's like the percentages have gone down. I just what is it just renders the home and away season less important. I don't have a problem with the the top team not winning the flag, um, but I think I think if that's happening because their advantages have been taken away, um, that's a bad thing. Um, and you, I guess it's the only thing you can argue. Um, but I think that the the pre-finals buy is, is the biggest um, is the biggest factor. Mm. Um, that's, uh, and it, that's, should, uh, it should stand for something. But top four, you know, I've I've lived a long time under the top eight system, and I just want top four should mean something for sure. Um, um I, yeah. just before I get off this, that that period of thirteen is only two teams who have finished top one flag. That's included five, I think, by any objective measure, truly dominant home and away teams that haven't won the premiership. Geelong in 2008, St Kilda in 2009, Collingwood in 2011, Richmond in 2018, and Port Adelaide this year who were first every year of this. Uh, you know, they were the they were like the third team in history to be top of the ladder after every round. So it's funny though, isn't it? Because that was the other thing I was going to talk about when it comes to the pre-finals buy is that if you ask. If you ask the majority of football experts for the majority of the year who was going to play off in the grand final, it was Richmond and Geelong. Brisbane had a little bit of convincing people to do and people were unsure about their forward line and whether they were arriving a bit too early, despite the circumstances aligning for them really beautifully. Port Adelaide um, had come from the clouds. They'd had a tremendous season, but were they ready? They showed that they were very nearly ready and, um, and pushed Richmond to the brink. Um, the other night, and were fantastic. It was hard not to barrack for them, really. To be, um, to be, to be, to be fair, and to counter my own argument, um, I think the, I think in a game that was decided by less than a goal, pretty much the most important factor on Friday night was the weather. I've, you know, I think the result could have been different if it had been dry. Yeah, yeah. Look, I just, I think um, Port was superb, um, and I don't think the. The rules of the season cost them their chance. They had a wonderful season and they came up against a, a champion team um, mm. who, who grit their teeth particularly hard towards the end there. Um, but we end up with a year where the experts called it a long way out. That Richmond and Geelong were the two teams, uh, the two battle-hardened, experienced teams who would face, no, no matter the adversity um, that they came up against this year, um, they had played the best football and they'd be playing off in the grand final. Um, so third and fourth, whatever it was, um, they were going to get the job done. Excellent. And Geelong did finish fourth. They're only the third team under this final eight system to finish fourth and make the grand final. So that was Collingwood in 2002, uh, Sydney in 2006, and Geelong 
in 2020. So let's get into it. There is a grand final on Saturday night, um, which I might very well be watching on my phone. Um, <laughs> Richmond versus Geelong, third versus fourth. Richmond going for their third premiership in four years. Uh, how do you see this game playing out? Uh Ah, man, it's been so hard to call so many of these finals games and I've got it wrong plenty of times. So I'll put my hand up and say that much. Um, But I have a sneaking suspicion that the best football I've seen played this year has been played by Geelong. Um, There was a a run of games there through the middle of the year and, um, you know, I'm, I'm... staunchly anti-Geelong whenever I can be <laughs> um, and and for the most part have been pretty staunchly anti, um, anti-Chris Scott. Um, but I think they've been remarkable. Um, they've, they've played better footy this year. They've been super adaptable. They've won from behind. Um, they've dominated teams. Um, they have dominated both of our teams at various stages. Um, and I've got to but- see them play. The, I, I've got to see them play premiership football um, many times this year, um, and so what's what's working against them is um, their age profile, I suppose. Which in an ordinary year with twenty-minute quarters, um, the wide expanses of the MCG, and um, that typically the factors that do go against Geelong in the finals, um, th- that's not happening. And instead, you've got a year where wise old heads, and we can go back to our um, our podcast, you know, pre the resumption. Um, where I said I just had a funny feeling about Geelong all of a sudden um, <clears throat> and I wish that I didn't but they they were starting to sort of um, show or, or that this season was offering up challenges that I felt an experienced team um, could overcome and so I actually think it's aligned really beautifully with shorter quarters for someone like a Joel Selwood who um, you know, it can can give his all for that many minutes. Um, uh, yeah, and I don't know. It's going to be very hard for me to barrack for either of these teams. Um, but there's also the Dangerfield story, which is, um, you know, he's a he's a gentleman of the game and, a, and a, a true champion who's about to play in his first grand final or his first since the under-12s. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing him win one. And the way that he played and has played um, through the finals, but particularly against us and then again, um, against Brisbane um, was something to behold and, and he can get them over the line by himself. What do you think? Well, I saw, I mean, my 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 instinct is to, to, to go with Richmond based on the evidence of what we've seen the last four years, which is probably a, a lanky American away from maybe four in a row. Um, but I did see something on, and I, wa- I watched both, prelims pretty closely um i did see something that should put terror into the heart of any richmond supporter uh on saturday night and that was the perform of gary ablett um he was the best player on the ground in my opinion and through the most important part of the game and his rediscovery of of the of the length of his kicking um you know, his ability to, 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 to be a sort of forward-thinking footballer um, just adds another dimension. I mean, he's a full-time forward now, and he's about to play his last game. Um, it's just a reminder of 
why he might be one of the greatest of all time. And I can sort of, I can sort of see a fairy tale ending for Gary if he plays like he did last week. Um, you know, they might win the flag and he might win the Norm Smith in his last game, which is, which I, which I don't know if has, has ever happened. Um, I can't see Gary getting that that kind of space um, against the Tigers. You'd um, imagine that uh, Jaden Short would go to him in pretty short order. I, I can I could see Richmond trying to start with someone like Huli on him, um, who might try and get off him a little bit. But uh, if I, I could see Hardwick making a switch there pretty quickly. So I think I think it's someone like you know. Gary was very good on the weekend, but he still he requires a bit of space to work his magic these days because he's lost a little bit of that explosiveness. Um, Dangerfield's lost none of it. Um, he he stands as a really pivotal um, matchup for Richmond to get right, no matter where he's playing on the ground. Um, it's been really interesting because um, there's there's a lot of comment out there that Dangerfield's not a particularly good forward. Well, he was superb against Collingwood. Um, and we were kind of second rate, but we really tried our best to stop Dangerfield from having an impact. Um, and he was just doing superhuman things. So he stands as a massive point of difference. Um, they're, they're hungry, Geelong. Um, Richmond, Richmond are a really, really good side. I want to clarify any comments I'm about to come out with by, by, um, you know, getting that out there, um, in advance of them. But, um, I kind of, I, I've always sided with Chris Scott, um, that, Richmond, to my mind, are not um, the Hawthorne team um, that went back to back to back. They're not, um, I don't think, they're the Geelong team as far as quality on every line goes. For me, this list of Richmond marries up more with actually that St Kilda team um, that you followed that made those grand finals and that I think it's always been, and like this is a credit to Hardwick and credit to the football club, um, but I think it's that there are great players at the top of that list, and then there are role players who who would do anything for that footy club. It's a it's a massively dangerous mix. Um, I think Richmond have been really good. They were breathtaking in 2017 and won their own flag from third um, due to the wave of momentum and and the fact that they hadn't won one for a long time. Um, they were the best team in 2018. Um, 2019, they were pretty ordinary and they found something and it was pretty clear from midway through the year that, that they were um, the best team in the competition and you called it a long way out along with some pretty you know big experts that you didn't want to be running into Richmond and so it proved. Um, this year, I haven't seen premiership footy from them and so it would they'd have to align really closely with Hawthorne to get it done. Um, that Hawthorne team that, that lost... Um, to West Coast before ultimately smashing them. And this is where I'll, I'll have to eat my words because um, Richmond could come out this this weekend and just play the best footy they've played all year as a team that has had that up their sleeve the whole time. But looking at it and looking for the, you know, that looking for the eye test, I just think Geelong, um, despite the fact that in round 17, they copped a, they got pantsed by Richmond, but there's been a bit of that. There's been a little bit of overturning um, results like that in this final series. West Coast pants Collingwood and um, St Kilda had beaten Richmond really comfortably. And, um, you know, there's been a few examples of that um, that have turned around. Um, Geelong pants Port Adelaide and got beaten in that first final. So I think the best footy I've seen this year has come from Geelong. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm tipping them. 
narrowly, okay. but I'm tipping them. All the all the statistical models, bar one, I think, are picking Geelong, and I think the Richmond one, the model that picks Richmond is based on odds from gambling agencies. So um, it's sort of incredible. That you, that, that they're all saying the same thing you are, which is Geelong narrowly. Um, Richmond have won both their flags from third. And, and they finished third against this year, this season for those who are interested in those sort of omens. Um, what I will say is this, and this is going to sound really odd, if Richmond beat Geelong on Saturday night, I think it's the end of the era for both of them. Um, the fourth one doesn't happen. And that you know we've seen some great teams in the last 20 years and none of them have been able to get the, the one after the third. Um, Hawthorne in 2016, Geelong in 2012, Brisbane in 2004, and then you know the moment is past. So I think, I think, I think the the Richmond Premiership clock is is pretty close to being past midnight, and they might be able to squeeze another year if they don't win this year. In in a, in a similar way to Geelong, what Geelong did in 2011, um, and uh, there'll be you know a whole bunch of new Geelong players who aren't superstars who will suddenly become premiership players if they win the premiership with all the associated confidence and that, that entails guys who played really well on Saturday, like uh, O'Connor and uh, the other guy who kicked the goal in the back line, um, who I can never remember his name. It's not Brian Myers, the guy who looks a little bit like him. Uh, Henry. Henry, Jack Henry. <laughs> Jack looks Henry, like, um, a good sort. Adam Driver. Yes, Good sort. I like him, and I, I think I liked him in last year's final series. Um, they're very good like on the paper, two, Geelong. They yeah, are very paper. good, and they're very even across the board. Mm. The, the, the wild card for Richmond, this is going to sound really odd, but his last fortnight has been superb as Toby Nankervis. I'm with you and, there. He was and, fantastic uh, in the last quarter of the, um, of the prelim. He was. Um, some guys are just built for finals and they're not superstars and they might play in key positions. And I'm not going to mention any names, but their initials are Clark Keating. Um, <laughs> and Nan Curvis might have a, have a bit of that about him. Um, he was very good against us, uh, very good against Port Adelaide, didn't win the hitouts in either game, but was clearly the, clearly outpointed and had the better of his opponent. Um, you know, it would be odd considering how even these teams are, I think. And I think... I think you can say top to bottom, Geelong are more talented, and I think I think I think regardless of talent, if Richmond uh, Richmond do win on the weekend, they deserve to be talked about in the same breadth as those other teams I've mentioned who've won three premierships um, in a short period of time. Hawthorne were sublimely talented. Um, that was sort of how they were built. Um, as were Geelong, you know the the the. Geelong team that won the 2011 Premiership. I saw them beat Collingwood uh, just before the start of the finals uh, by 96 points. I was there in person. It was the best I've ever seen a team kick the football ever. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, Brisbane won three in a row. I think, you know, I, I, I think it, 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 it's possibly sounding churlish to say that to, to diminish Richmond and compare them to a team um, that didn't win any flags. And, you know, it seemed very close to my heart. But St Kilda didn't have a player on that team as good as Dustin Martin. Well, and that's the that... only thing. That's the thing we're saying as well. Is <laughs> that I think potentially, you know, Dusty is the outstanding player on, on just about any of those lists. Maybe, um, you know, 
Gary Ablett and, and Lance Franklin are in the conversation. But um, it's, Martin it's, is a superb player and a difference maker, of course. Um, but if you're going to be able to run a muck like he did against GWS, has he produced the kind of season that we've come to expect from Dusky? Uh, compared to the back half of last year, compared to his entire 2017, I'm going to say no. And so you always pose the question, um, or, or certainly did earlier this year, are we just about to see them click and the rest of the competition to stand aside? When Dusty clicks and Richmond clicks, is it all she wrote? And I would argue that they haven't quite. They've done a lot right. They've, you know, they've they've um, been up against it. They've they've tackled their own uh, off-field stuff um, this year. But yeah, I think I think um, Dusty hasn't quite got there for me. Um, compared to some of the other players in the competition um, and compared to his runs of previous years where we know he is the best player in the competition when he's up and firing. Um, and Richmond sort of have followed suit. They've done enough. And they certainly have. They're in a grand... It's, it's, this is going to sound ridiculous in the extreme, but Martin actually has the most at stake on Saturday night because... If they win the premiership and he wins a Norm Smith medal, he's in the conversation for best ever, in my opinion. He's, you know, he, he might be the best finals player ever already. Um, but to do that, to sort of be clearly the best player and not just the best player in a premiership team, but the best player in the premiership game, um, three out of four years, which is completely on the table. If Richmond win... It, it, you know, I, I, you'd almost suggest that Martin Norm Smith is as likely as not. It's a coin flip. Definitely. It would just, it would be unprecedented. You know, Gary Ayres won two Norm Smith medals, but he was the, never the best player on his team. He was the best player on the day. Um, Andrew McLeod won two won Norm Smith medals in back to back years, which would also be what Dusty would be doing this year. Um, <laughs> I certainly remember thinking at the end of 98 that he wasn't the best player for Adelaide in that game. And that wasn't the best iteration of Andrew McLeod. He was a better footballer after 97 and 98. So um, he just, you know, if he, if he, if they win the premiership and they win the, and, and, and he is the best player on the ground, he wins the norms, but he just goes to, he goes to the, he goes to the top of the tree. He, he deserves to be talked about in the same breaths as the, as the, Lee Matthews and you know those sorts, you know, is in absolute. He's top ten. Yeah, I I have to agree, um, and it's just I have a reservation in being able to confirm that that will happen. Where you you sort of couldn't. It was undeniable last year, and 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 this is where the truly great players and the truly great teams. You're right. Will ascend and prove me wrong. The way I thought West Coast would win the 2015 Grand Final. Um, mm. Was it 2015? Yeah, I thought they would when, show up. Yeah, and when win. They... I thought the Swans would win the year before. And there's there's guys like Luke Hodge. They're not winning. Um, and, you know, that, that I mean, could well be Dusty. It, it certainly strikes me the type of person Trent Cochin is, um, yeah. that kind of guy who just grits his teeth and said, you are not winning. Um, mm. And and neither Sydney or West Coast got within cooey of Hawthorne those days. And it was obvious from the first bounce. Yeah. Are Richmond going to turn up and do that? Hodges, uh, Hodges is the other one who has two Norm Smiths, but I would also suggest, and I, I know there'll be plenty of people who won't agree with it, that he was never the best player on his team. But then I'm in the Sam Mitchell camp. Um, 
how are you? No, I'm, yeah. I'm a Hodge man, but I'll but I'm happy to um, stand corrected on the grand final performances. Yeah, but, and um, Hodge has Hodge has a poor grand final performance in his resume. In his resume, he was pretty awful in 2012, and I don't think played in the prelim and possibly shouldn't have played in the grand final. So yeah, that's right. He lost a bunch of kilos. Yeah. yeah, there's still there's still a black mark. Um, I don't think any Hawthorne player played well in '85. So you know. And Gary Ears was on that team. So um, my suspicion is that is that Richmond aren't they just aren't that good. But I'll have to eat my words. I'm, when I say they aren't that good, I think they are a really really good team and a great I, team. They've won I, two flags. I don't think they're as good, and so I'm happy to put that out there and be loud and wrong um, because uh, I think Geelong will get it done, and 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 then my suspicion will be confirmed, or I'll just be wrong and loud. And happy to, and freely admit that you're exactly right. Um, that Dusty is a true, true great of the game and potentially a top ten of all time. Um, and that Richmond were a truly great champion team who did exactly what Hawthorne did and and said not today to Geelong, no matter how fancied they were. Mm. And I think I think we've got to the, you know, to the to the last analysis is we're both going to be going into Saturday sort of not barracking for teams but barracking for people. Um, you're going to be barracking for Dangerfield. Um, I think I think having thought about it now while we're recording, what the thing I most want to see happen on Saturday is if we're going to get that dusty performance that it happens in a game where the game is in dispute halfway through the last quarter, which hasn't happened in 2017 and 2019. I mean, the game was right. last year. The game wasn't in dispute ten minutes, you know, halfway through the warm up. Um, so you know if Dusty can. You know, do something. Oh, this this is this is through gritted teeth, but something along the lines of Paul Chapman in two thousand and nine with his bionic hamstring. Um, <laughs> then you know it it will it will it will. Oh, I mean, I mean, I was never a huge rap for Adam Goods as a footballer, but the twenty twelve grand final, I was sold. I was just like, I can't. There's no criticism that stands, or or. You just have to re- recognize how good he was to to do mm. what he did on one leg. It's just like mm. you are a champion. I'm I'm done. Um, you know, I I tip my hat to you. Um, <laughs> we we talk about it. we're talking <laughs> well, um, we're talking about uh, angels on a pinhead sort of stuff with Martin and how good he is. But if he can, if he can sort of, if he can, as I said, he can be the best player in a grand final, and it can, and it can be sort of. I mean, he was the best player last year, but they, they probably win that game without him last year. And mm. um, if you can sort of be the difference in the last quarter when the game's on the line, then you know, I think, I think we have to start talking about it in that sort of way. But um, we've we've had some good ones, and and hopefully it'll be closer just for the, the sheer level of the the fact that uh, the the game is the game is shorter, but last year was the first stinker we'd had in a little while. So real true stinker. So 2017 wasn't bad for, he got away from Adelaide in the second half, but Bulldogs and Sydney was a great game. Mm. Collingwood and West coast was a great game. Mm. I'll, I'll let you know. what I mean, it was probably nothing but pain and awfulness for you, but it was a great, uh, game. it was a true um, tug of war. Yeah. So hopefully we get a good one and, it will be something, and then, and then we go into a very, very short off season, which will be yeah. 
it's tough to imagine it not being a good game. I have to say, um, if if I can ignore the fact that I'm not particularly fond of either team, and that's really just because they've been successful, um, which is very petty. Um, but I'm I'm ready for them both to go away. Um, but I, I think that I'll be able to put that to one side and just enjoy them throwing hammer and tong at each other. They are to me, to my mind, they're the best teams in it, and they're very evenly matched. And I just can't wait. And when everyone come back, comes back to Melbourne after the end of the game, if somehow they could lose Brian Taylor in luggage, that'd be excellent. <laughs> I'm Brian leave Taylor you needs to get off the TV. It's 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 not that he is um, untalented. I mean, Channel 7 just have their whole ethos is, is wrong. It's wrong. I'm, I'm happy to say that. Um, you know, Daisy Pierce is by far and away their best commentator. Um, yeah, she's their best analyst. It's awesome when she speaks um, and they should let her speak more often and she shouldn't be ignored the way she is on the broadcast. And there, there's this whole boys club aspect to football, which is surely dead in the water. If it wasn't in the nineties, it, it is now. So we've got to move forward and embrace the way the game is changing. Um, bring a little bit of something to the commentary box that mirrors what's happening at footy clubs where it's no longer okay to be in overly macho and, um, you know, to yeah, to be misogynistic and sexist and all that kind of gear is just there's no place for it anymore, and it, well, it's it's caught up in the Triple M Channel Seven vibe. I just think they can get rid of it. Fair enough. We could get into that, and we might on the off season just to keep everyone interested. We might do a like a root and branch review of television, but in short, um, Daisy's excellent. Luke Hodge is good, but he talks too much. Um, Joe Watson's been a breath of fresh air this year, I think, on the seven coverage, and um, everyone else can go away <laughs> and get a new job. Um, anyway, um, my office chair just slowly, slowly descended because, which is a way of telling me that we've gone too long. So, um, we'll call it a day there, but we will uh, talk about footy, um, very soon after the grand final, but we also need to start talking about cricket. We've got a few things that we need to go over and some, some topics that we've just been sitting on for a while. So and some all-rounders For our long-suffering long cricket fans, you haven't heard us talk cricket for probably a year um, <laughs> and also happen to have managed to listen through 95 minutes of a podcast about footy. Um, we will get to cricket very soon. Um, but until then, thanks for joining me, Cameron. Good on you, mate. No worries. We will catch you next time on It Should Go Without Saying.